Okay, well, good evening. Glad you guys are here. We're talking about our interesting 24 hours and uh, all that has been going on in our world uh, and in our country. I think, um, you know, for us as believers, I, I say a lot of times, like, you really can't have your hope in the, the pol political sphere of America. Uh, it's just never going to be an answer. It never will. Uh, yeah, I think good intentions or bad intentions always wind up humanizing towards self-centeredness, self-assurance, pride, things that are poisonous. And, you know, there are, I, I think our country has a very deep philosophical divide uh, between uh, democratic ideals and republican ideals. And I, I think that in order for our country to actually get healthy and move forward, somewhere in the way people are going to need, need to realize that there's legitimacy on both sides, not in every aspect of it, but over too oversimplified. Republicans believe in personal responsibility and personal freedom. Democrats believe in government and corporate and community responsibility, so government oversight. Both are pretty legitimate, but they need to work together. There needs to be balance to that. I don't see this approaching that. Yeah, I, I think the the inevitable belief that humans have in human power is what unsettles us, gets us riled up, because we watch the transfer of human power and we think that we lose something. But the reality is, as Christians, we don't believe in human power. doesn't mean we don't get in, engaged and involved in it, but our hope, like let's just say, let's just say all the right people get elected all the time and they make all the right laws and they do all the right things and they have all the right intentions. So what? Like our goal is not a country, that my hope is not a country that models God's laws. Is that my hope? Can't be, right? My hope is redemption and salvation and people coming to Christ and finding forgiveness, not moral revision. And sometimes we get so wound up in the making sure that the laws match what we think they should, whether, it's, whether you think we are uh, compassionate enough for those who are hurting and, and downtrodden and, and not giving equal opportunity, or whether you think that we are eroding the moral fiber of the country, e both sides think they have some moral high ground, but they want to take human power and apply it to, to fix it. And human power doesn't fix those problems. Really, it never will. If it did, Jesus wouldn't die on a cross. Jesus would reign as a king. He would step up into a kingdom and march armies out and take over the world. That's what he would have done. The love of God is what changed, and the love of God is what we have. So I'm thankful for the process that we get to participate in. I am fascinated by it, even now. Uh, I, I think for everyone who is disheartened, my heart breaks for you because it is a hard thing to, to look at and watch and feel good about where our country is. Um, but this, this isn't our home. It doesn't mean we're not participating, but this isn't our home. And this isn't our hope. And Jesus can come back tomorrow. And you know what I mean? Like, let's, let's keep in mind what our mission is uh, as we go. So uh, if you're watching this from home, we're coming to you live right now. And if you're watching this later, we're coming to you recorded right now whenever you're watching it. Um, and uh, I'm just saying that whatever the outcome of this is, and I think it's going to be somewhat of a long process just because nobody, because everybody really believes in power. <laughs> everybody really believes in power. And they all want it and they won't let go of it. And 
They'll make sure that they have every bit of it that they could have. Um, but we're, we're looking at the Word of God tonight because we want to choose for ourselves something different and some better. So uh, I'm praying that we'll be able to do that, that we'll be able to find heart, that we'll be able to recognize that whatever the outcome of this is, our calling is exactly the same. Love God, love people. Serve, show kindness, be good, be gentle. Let the fruit of the Spirit dominate our lives. Put off, as Paul's saying in this passage, put off the old self, be made new, and put on the new self. I mean, when you think about it, Christianity in the first century didn't have any of the worries we have about our political process, about the corruption of the media or, you know, who, who's taken under... They didn't have any of those worries. They turned the world upside down without any advantage politically at all. As a matter of fact, they were oppressed. They were persecuted. They were hunted. They, right? So it, it reminds us that none of what's happening on Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and all that is determinative to whether or not our lives have purpose and are moving towards the direction that we've been called to for Jesus Christ. So hopefully for us as believers, it energizes us um, because I think a lot of people are disheartened. I think a lot of people are discouraged. I think a lot of people are realizing as time goes by that even winning is losing. <laughs> you know, uh, you get a candidate who's elected and, and the, the two houses of Congress are both you know, the same party and yeah, 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 they said no way, right, 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 and those, all those realities, it's, we, I think we over hope in the results of an election, whatever it is, and, or we're over disappointed in them. Because the reality is, even presidents over the past 20 years have had Congress with them and Congress against them. I can't say that they were, in my estimation or experience, they were dramatically different in making all kinds of progress. There was always push against, um, which I actually think is good, but I do think we over hope in it sometimes. So we're going to... Yeah. But then the public outcry, when you push too far to the right or too far to the left, the public's going to say, yeah. hey, they're going to rein it in. And then two years from now, which is like one state election after another, you're going to get another election and they throw that. That's right. That's right. And, and yeah, it is, we think it's much more stable than it is on election night. Then after election goes by and this fades, then we realize, oh, it's the same it's pretty much the same as it's always been. Uh, a lot of yelling and screaming and not as much progress as, as we'd hoped. So we're going to try, try to make progress. We're going to stay on, on target in our calling. Um, let me, because we're talking about election, let me talk about church election for you guys as well as for anyone watching. And if anybody has been confused about election stuff, this part of the video you can pass on to them for us as a church. Um, so we have partner forms here that are for voting that are due back by November 15th. The top section is to vote for deacon team members. The bottom section is to vote for any person you think who isn't currently a leadership person, is not currently an elder, that you think should be. Then you can vote for them down there. Up here, uh, there are, we put out a sheet that tells you who are the deacons currently that are up for re-election. You can vote for any and all of them or none of them, whoever you think 
should be reelected to a two-year term, you can vote for them. This is your vote. You can vote for anyone else that you think should be a deacon. The partners are on the back of this form. You can vote for them. Doesn't I put 12 spots here, but you can vote for as many as you'd like, um, and I tabulate all those votes. You can vote once for any person. You can't vote more than once for any person. Down here, uh, for the leadership candidate, let me say again, on the bottom of this sheet are our elders. You do not need to vote for any of those. This is the new leadership candidate people. Anyone you think who currently is not an elder but should be or could be, you vote for them. It takes 54 partners or 56 partners to appoint them, 40% of our partnership per our constitution. But if we get 20%, we, we take it to the leadership team and the leadership team can um, like appoint them provisionally because they had a significant number of partner votes. So if you see somebody who is fit for either of those roles, you vote, you drop it in the offering, you give it to me, you give it to one of our elders, and we will count them. We need them back by November 15th. If you have questions on that, feel free to see us, um, and I will be glad to answer those questions for you to clear that up, okay? Also, we are Operation Christmas Child, which uh, those are due back on November 15th. I didn't check tonight, but I think the boxes are gone. Is anybody? They are? Um, so they, they do have shoeboxes at like Hobby Lobby or you can have little clear things that you send. So you can still participate by going online or go, getting some literature here and packing a shoebox according to the instructions. We would love to have hundreds of boxes from our church that go around the world and share the love of Jesus. And I would love for families and couples and individuals who feel alone during the holiday season to take advantage of that opportunity to share the love of Jesus in a very meaningful way that isn't overwhelming for us. I mean, packing a shoebox is not overwhelming financially, but it just puts our attention where we want it to be. Um, probably the most powerful thing we can do is give and serve because it shows the love of Christ to others. So Operation Christmas Child is an easy way to do that, so be a part of that. And then the other thing is, we said Sunday we have kids ministry volunteers needed. I want to emphasize that again, and I want to say um, one of the big crunches right now for us is the, the registration table, the check-in, and especially just temperature checks at the 8.30 service, uh, even at the 11 o'clock service, but just taking temperature checks because we have to have two people there to do all that. So if you can be a part of that, there's an a email on our uh, Sunday post as well as in the, the Hope Notes that comes out. It's just kids at hopechristianfellowship.org. Let them know. I'd be willing to take a turn. Uh, give us a week, give us two weeks, give us a week, a month, whatever. Uh, we need volunteers for that, especially. We can use volunteers in all of our kids' ministry. Honestly, we can, because we're kind of ramping up, we're seeing more and more people come, um, and, and thankfully for that, I think there's a good thing to that. I think there's health and spiritual health to that, but we're hit and miss with some of the places that were filled in and were established, so we need volunteers kind of in a lot of places, including like our sound tech and production booth. We could use some volunteers there uh, and everywhere. So if you have something that you see that you would like to be a part of and you've never been a part of or you don't want to be part of it long term, but you can help us bridge the gap, let us know and we will plug you in to any and all of those places. All right. Uh, so Hope Notes came out today. Hopefully you got that and you can check in on that. Otherwise, you can check in on Sunday with the Sunday Post. All right. We are in Ephesians 4. So uh, I will invite you to get there in the Bible with me, and uh, we're going to read the section that we finished up last week, and then I'm going to read the couple of verses that we're going to look at tonight. 
Um, so last week, we, told, we looked, let's start at verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is really amazing verses that, that I loved going over last week. Put off the old self, be made new, and put on the new self. We talked about kind of what the, the picture he's using is clothing, take off old clothes, put on new clothes. But the process, we talked last week about the process of that. How do we do that? Um, what does that feel like, look like in our lives? And because of that call, then we get to verse 25, which he says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. Do you notice he said, put off your old self, and now he's saying, put off falsehood. He's connecting these ideas that as I put off my old self, there are some behaviors and patterns and tendencies that I want to specifically and intentionally put off. And it's not just this first one, it's going to be a bunch of them. But therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And it goes on from there, but we're, we're going to kind of focus on those verses tonight. So there's this call to us to live new. Not for us to make ourselves new. We are made new. So it's a work of God that we're receiving, and then we're supposed to recognize it and respond to it. Kind of like, let's say, um, let's say you won the lottery, you won uh, $100 million, right? Now, in olden times, maybe they would give you a bag of gold or something like that. But now, if you won $100 million, they're probably giving you some piece of paper, a check, maybe a big cartoony check or something like that. And you're probably not putting $100 million in your hand. They're probably not giving you dollars, right? They're giving you... So maybe, let's just pretend, maybe somebody's like, yeah, well, I never got that money. And you're like, well, we just put it in... We electronically deposited it in your bank account. Yeah, well, I didn't see it. All they gave me was some piece of paper that said they were going to give it to me, but they never gave it to me. Well, yeah, but we gave it to you. Here's your bank account balance. Here's the, the bottom line. No, I, I don't think you ever gave it to me. The reality of it being your bank account is true whether you believe it or not. What would be the transition there from somebody who is now living like their old life before their $100 million and their new life after. It's when they decide to start believing it's there. Start writing checks, so to speak, spending money, giving it away or using it for debt payments or whatever. That moment when the realization that this is real changes what I believe is possible, what I believe is mine, and what I believe I'm allowed to do. When he talks about an old self and a new self, we, have, we are called to be made new in our minds and to put that new self on. In other words, we are supposed to live in what we've been made new. And he says what we are made new, verse 24, we are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the picture Paul gives us is recognize that you have been made righteous and holy. You have been set right, right desires. Your soul aches for what is good, what is right, what is holy, what is pure, what is without sin. That's what your soul aches for because you've been made new. Anything that you pursue that is against that is going to be dissatisfying and kind of miserable 
because my nature, what I've been made new as, is going to wrestle against it. You can believe in your flesh that that's something you want, but your soul knows, no, this is not it. This is, this is, I'm shooting way too low. I'm settling for way too little. Your flesh knows that. So he's saying kind of the same thing with your bank account with your $100 million. I've got to start living like I've got holiness and righteousness as my nature. I've got to put that on and say, I used to be someone who just did this and this and this, never thought about it. But I'm not that anymore. I've been made holy and righteous. So I'm going to put that on. And I'm going to learn how to live in what I've been made. That's that process he's talking about. And he says, each of you should do this. Therefore, verse 25, therefore each of you must put off. Each of you. So it's call for every one of us. It's not just for people who are out front, spiritual people, uh, visible leaders, high profile Christians. It's for all of us. Each and every follower of Jesus. And it starts, Paul talks about, in the attitude of your minds. It starts in how we think about ourselves. Just like being able to spend my $100 million starts in what I think about what my bank account says. My ability to live in righteousness and holy changes when I how I think when I start thinking differently about unrighteousness and unholiness. When I start thinking differently about who I am and what my nature is, what I've been made to be. So that's kind of the setup to this. Suddenly what we have, as we go here from verse 25 down into chapter 5, we were, I don't know if you guys remember this, but back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, even in chapter 3, we're talking about Paul's just effusiveness, just flowing words out of him in these long, flowery sentences, prayers that just went on and on and on, words that just piled and stumbled off one another, you know, uh, verses like 7 to 14 and like... 15 to 25, it's all one big long sentence to Paul because he's just all this eagerness and this joy and this, this just energy behind it of wonder for this miracle of salvation from God and he's just flowery language and all this stuff. It really shifts here. And all of a sudden you have these real staccato sentences, these real short, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully for we are all members of one body. Like it's just quick. And then in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. The, they're just, so there's this big shift in how Paul talks. And I'm wondering if we can think of any reason for that shift, that grammatical language shift. And I'm asking anybody who's out online too, please participate with us because you know, I want you to feel like you're, you're a part of this. Even if you're watching this later, you're welcome to post comments on this. But uh, Dana's back here monitoring what's said. So uh, we'll, we'll throw your, your input in as well. But that shift from long flowing sentences to really short, blunt sentences as he begins to move from what God has done into what, how we should respond, why do you have any practical reason why he would shift from you know, more wordy and kind of um, ornate language to more direct, punchy language? Anything you guys can think of? Okay. More practical, more direct. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's definitely a different genre of what he's trying to accomplish. 
Okay? So what God has done almost seems like there's not enough words. Right. So and we, there are songs that even, like even psalms and, and even worship songs that express that idea of, uh, I could sing about this without end. This could just go, this song could just go on and on. Um, uh, Christ be magnified, I think we sang Sunday, and you know, if, if, every, if every person started to, so uh, I think there's an old hymn that talks about if, if the sky were a scroll and everybody was a scribe and we could write, we would write for it, we would fill this, like there's no end to the goodness and the greatness of God. So that, that kind of fits, right? Like Paul can't say enough. He can't, he feels like he's trying to describe this indescribable greatness, goodness of God, and it just can't get enough around it, right? So then what we're supposed to do gets a little bit quicker. Have you ever tried to explain to like, let's say, I don't know, a 10-year-old or something, what you'd like them to do? How do you explain it to them? Long explanations with all kinds of background and what you were doing yesterday and what's going to happen three years from now. Because Right to the point, right? Super simple. Because why? If I start this, it's just lost. In other words, to describe what God has done is, is the only way you can even begin to do it is just to spill wonderful words out of your mouth. But what we're called to do is not that hard. It's simple. And Paul makes it simple. Like, don't get lost, guys. Here's what you need to do. Brevity. Yeah, because if you don't, Paul recognizes as a teacher, as a leader, if I start to get real flowery or real deeply exp explanatory here, you're going to argue over the explanation. But the explanation wouldn't be the point. The point is, respond to who you've been made to be. And here are some practical ways you can do it. I don't want you to get lost in the weeds. I want, you, I want it to be very cl clear, very simple. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. Put off falsehood, and et cetera, and these other things. So Paul becomes very simple. And, he, and each one of these, or most of these, have a negative and positive coupling. Just like he said, put off the old self, and put on the new self, each one of these have like a negative don't and a positive do as we go through the... So here, in this first one, is the first practical zone. Paul says that because you've been made new, it should affect how you relate to honesty, to truthfulness versus deceptiveness and lying. And he says we must put off falsehood, and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Put off falsehood. I guess it's ideal that this is the day after an election. We're talking about put off falsehood, right? Like it's, I know that we think, and if I, even if I was talking to somebody who didn't know Jesus and I talked about, you know, you should be honest. Everybody kind of is like, yeah, you should be honest, right? Like people are kind of like, yeah. Not, not when the rubber meets the road, but in the general principle, yeah, you should be honest. Yes, I definitely want other people to be honest with me because it gives me more control, it gives me more information, it gives me more, less guesswork and, and that kind of stuff. But today, 
I would say putting off falsehood and speaking truthfully seems, especially to believers, but I think even to our world, obviously virtuous. Yeah, that, that, that's what you should. Good people are honest people. If you're not, if you're kind of shady, you're probably not a good, you might be successful, but you're not really somebody I want to be a friend. You're certainly not somebody I want to partner up with or marry or, or go into business with if you're shady. Like, I want someone who's honest. Everybody kind of knows that and gets that. But in order for that to be lived out, it depends on a view of life that sees honesty as beneficial, as reliably beneficial and not a potential liability. That's where people struggle. This is where politicians struggle. Because honesty can be a liability. You're, you're saying things to people, and if you say something honestly to people, they may hold you to that. They may see a weakness. They may see a, you know, something that you did wrong, an error in your ways, and you can get crushed for it. You don't want that. So I want to be very careful about how I present myself to everyone. So this put off falsehood and speak honestly, in the first century pagan world, this is written to Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in Asia Minor, current day Turkey. It is a hub for Roman civilization. It is, I mean, obviously Rome and Greece, and, but Asia Minor is a hub, and, and Ephesus is one of the main port cities of that region. Everybody kind of comes through this, and Ephesus, the, the church at Ephesus is probably like hundreds of churches like they didn't have buildings like this you couldn't really meet in buildings like this so they had houses and homes and they met here and there and wherever they could so this church at Ephesus is is variegated throughout the the, the whole city and the whole suburb-ish area of it but it's mostly people who aren't familiar with God the Ten Commandments Abraham Isaac Jacob they're pagans right so when we hear, you must put off falsehood and speak truth, we're like, yeah, you know, we should be honest people. And these people are like, wait, what? That's bad? Because their culture wasn't about valuing honesty. Their culture was about valuing, it wasn't character, it was honor, reputation, position, status. And you were considered a productive member of society when you added honor to your country, to your nation, to your family, when you won wars or when you did well in business or when you got the better of some other nation, some other tribe, some other you know, nationality, well, then you were raising up your group. And so there was honor being gathered. Honesty was kind of like, I'll be honest when it suits me. I'll be dishonest when it suits me. The truth is something that I use to my advantage whenever I need to use it. And lying is something I used to my advantage because there wasn't, in their world, a moral code of honesty was not a given. So Paul says to them, listen, I know from your background, you used to think like this. And it's probably pretty natural. You grew up in this. Now I'm telling you, when you come to Christ, you need to take that off. And you need to put this on, this speak truthfully to your neighbor that idea of honesty in that pagan world that is something that i don't know if we can fully understand but maybe it's maybe there are things in 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 our culture in our world that we could say this is something 
that we value culturally that maybe isn't, is something we should put off when we come to Christ. Does that make sense? It feels normal and natural, even good. It's kind of shocking that it isn't. Anything come to mind that might fall into that category of something that our culture would seem and feel is normal? And then when you come to Jesus, you hear it's not normal, it's not okay, you need to put that off. And people who are saved out of the world, not people who grew up in the church or, you know, uh, heard the teachings of the New Testament, but people who've just kind of grown up in our culture. Can you think of anything? How about uh, living together before you get married? Couples who are dating are presumptively sexually active. I've had this conversation a number of times with couples. As a believer, our sexual ethic is sex is for marriage. Wait, what? Excuse me? Like, that is not the ethic of our world. And I don't blame somebody who got saved out of the world for not knowing that. But when you come to Christ, there are things you have to put off and things you have to put on. Um, greed, ambition is something that our world thinks is normal and good. They elevate it. They applaud it. And yet, Paul tells us in Philippians we should have nothing to do with selfish ambition because look at what Jesus did. So there, is this, there are things that we have in our calling, honesty being one of them, but many other things that our culture would tell us, don't worry about that, that's fine. And then Christianity and, and following Jesus would tell us, no, you need to put that off and you need to put on Christ-likeness there. And I wonder how, mu how much we're challenged with that how many times we're challenged to put off what the culture says is normal and to put on what christ says is normal or if we just don't ever see it you know what i mean it is a daily thing yeah yeah and but is it a daily? in other words i look at our church and i wonder how many of us are fighting that battle of putting off and putting on even recognizing about even even honesty you know like where in my life does the battle for me being putting off falsehood and speaking truthfully to my neighbor show up like where in a christian's normal life in in southern new jersey in 2020 where would that battle show up would, do we have any kind of like scenarios where that where normally would show up and i've got a choice to make about putting off falsehood and speaking truthfully to my neighbor. Yeah. 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 
Right, right, right. It's for him to, to, to extend that olive branch. Yeah. I mean, he, he was still a very significant person in the mm-hmm. Christian people. Mm-hmm. Especially when he said that. Sure, then, sure. Then the pagan culture. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. I think, I think obviously, as we look at the state of our world and the things that are here, we get to choose whether we're silent or not. What's going to stop me from saying the truth? Maybe. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yep, yep. I'm not saying there aren't consequences. I'm just saying I decide if I'm going to be silent or not. Yeah. But what that expresses is I can't get through to you. It doesn't change my ability to hold and speak truth as I need to. You know what I mean? Like I'm not going to try to jam it down somebody's throat because if they're rejecting it, they rejected it. That's, that's their decision. But those who I influence and the, and, and the areas over which I'm responsible for, we're going to speak truth. We're going to be truthful. We're not going to back down because the culture says we need to or we're supposed to. And if that has consequences... Uh, that's to me. That's God's thing. You know what I mean? But I, I just, I, I just see more people who I, I, I stood up as in nineteen forty nine. Yeah, yeah, but that's that wasn't the end of the story. Do you know what I mean? Nineteen thirty nine is not the end of the story. All I'm saying is, we get a choice about how we go through this. If we go through this heads up and and showing generations to follow that it's worth it it's worth any cost and any price and we get maybe the light shines more more brightly in the darkness maybe it's more noticeable i don't know i know this it it, throughout history there have been many times where the culture of the world was completely against christian values and the gospel prevails because the power of god is true like that's real so i want to find out how to live that i'm used to and comfortable living in a world where christianity or christian values are applauded, normalized, held up. I'm used to that. I'm not used to this other direction where, you know, Christians are ridiculed and and made to look stupid or or hate-filled or whatever. Like, that's not, I'm not used to that. But I'm going to find a way to speak the truth. I'm going to try to find a way to express the truth in a way that people can hear it and respond to it because that's my calling. 
For as long as I'm breathing, as long as I'm here, that's my calling. I'm going to live by the word of God, and I'm going to invite others to, and I'm going to tell them it's the best way to live. Yeah, well, hard to quiet us in small groups in our home, but, <laughs> you know, I think, I think whatever it is, the, the power of God is not limited by what seems limiting to us. So that's where our hope comes from, you know? And that's why, like, even this, saying to a, a teenager, it's better to be honest than, than to lie, for them right then, that's a hard pill because maybe being honest means some real consequences for them. But if I'm willing to say being honest is, speaking the truth is worthwhile, putting off falsehood and speaking truthfully to my neighbor, even when there are consequences, maybe, it's, maybe that's where the power of the church was in those early centuries, that they were willing to stand up and face consequences for the truth. They were willing to put it all on the line for the truth. Maybe there's a more powerful witness to people that need to see Jesus through that than there ever would be by people who say, well, you just believe that because you grew up in America. And I've, how many times have I heard that? You just believe in Jesus because you grew up in America. No, I believe in Jesus because I believe in Jesus. I believe it's true. So I don't know what the, the days ahead have for us, but I know this, God has us in them and God has those I love in them if they'll trust him, you know? And I'm gonna try to be that example uh, in all of those days for those, for those who trust him. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the things that we have valued. Some of the things we've valued. There you go. And I think that, that reality of where we started, you know, the, the people need to, to work so that they can eat and the, the self-reliance and the respect for your neighbor and the community thing coming together because they choose to, not because someone's over them forcing it. Like, those things came out of a reaction to ungodly power and decided to try to form a godly structure of power. Humanity will take any form of power and try to twist it and bend it, which is what we're seeing in front of us. Uh, I don't have a lot of hope for you in that America's politics are going to get redeemed. But God is still in control. And because of that, we can be like, all right, Lord, if you're up for it, I'm up for it. <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah, if you, if you look at the context of Jesus' life, the people who were concerned about power, influence, position, were Romans who, who presumed their power. They were in charge. They had military might. They were over charge. You know, Roman citizenship was a big deal. Um, it, and after Jesus died and, and ascended, um, Rome came and proved that by wiping out Jerusalem and completely taking over Israel. So Rome was superior, but they were also in, very invested in being and looking superior. That's why Pilate washes his hands. He's like, I, I don't really care about anything except I don't want to riot. I'm just afraid of what might happen if I make the wrong call here, so I'm just going to do this, and I don't want any responsibility for it, right? Um, the other group that was very, very cons consumed with power, keeping power, were the religious leaders of Israel who had negotiated and worked and, and kind of wedged their way in with Roman authorities as influential, we'll keep the peace. We, if you partner with us, our people will listen to us and we'll take the load off of you. And they had done that so that they could have power over the people of God. And when Jesus showed up and people started following them, it is one of the main reasons the religious leaders of Israel hated him because people listened to him and he never tried to overthrow as a matter of fact, like, like Dana just mentioned, in the end, they thought they won. They sentenced him to death. They, they used their connections with the Roman powers that be to get him killed. And then they said, went back and said, now you need to seal the tomb so that nobody believes that he was resurrected. He kind of kept promising he was going to raise from the dead. You need to seal the tomb. So there was this buddy-buddy relationship with power and it was the thing that drove them. The fear of losing power blinded them to the power that Jesus brought. That fear. And I think for us, it is the way the enemy wants us to navigate the days ahead through fear of losing influence, opportunity. But God is not limited by what we think is limiting. So when there's grief, <laughs> there's um, heartache, because of, and there has been all year for all kinds of different reasons, right? Because of the, the state of our nation and the, the anger and the frustration and the nastiness that goes on and the dishonesty and the agenda that moves us away from, from the Word of God being sacred and powerful and true and life-giving into the Word of God is, is fairy tales and lies and should be thrown away. That all feels negative, and yet... I think that the enemy wants to whisper at us, as you lose position, as you lose voice in this culture, you're losing. But we don't lose anything. Because Jesus doesn't lose. He said to his disciples the night before he was killed, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. 
I have overcome the world. And he said that before he died. When it looked like all the political power was used against him to bring everything he was and everything he taught to an end, that's what it looked like. He said in that moment, less than 24 hours before it, be of good cheer. It may look like I've lost, but I haven't. It may look like you're going down, but you're not. I have overcome the world. I think that's where we find hope in this for us and for anyone else. You know, I think of my kids and my grandkids. Those are hard things. But you know what? God is enough for them too. He is. He is available. He loves them. He died for them. He is inviting them into a life and a walk of faith with them. And if they will turn to him, he is all that they need. So I, I've got, it makes me put my foundation back on what I believe the foundation needs to be on that sometimes shifts over to things I don't think it's on, but it turns out to be on because when it goes wrong, then I'm shaken, except Jesus is exactly the same. I get, and I get shaken for a lot less than the election. <laughs> I get shaken because there's too much traffic on my way to where I want to go or somebody thinks something bad. You know what I mean? Like a lot less than something as major in this world as an election. I get shaken all the time. And what it recognized in my soul is peace I give you. Not like the world gives. My peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. And that's what I want to hear and come back to regardless of what big or small unsettles me. I want to come back to the foundation that keeps me solid, the foundation that doesn't shift. So when Jesus tells that parable about the, the building of a house on sand and the building of a house on a rock and the storm comes, the one that gets leveled is the one that was built on something that wasn't sturdy enough. Like, you know, democracy is going to work. <laughs> right? Ain't strong enough for building your life. But Jesus is Lord, that'll never move. And that's what holds us up through the storm. So that's, I think for us, it's finding our way to that in this stuff. And when we talk about speaking truthfully, it's the same thing. If I want control, a lot of times the reason I try to speak dishonestly is because I want control of an outcome. But who do I really want to have control of that outcome? So where's my life founded on? My control or his? My, my um, ability to navigate and influence and, and move and, and use human power to try to get to an end that I think is a good end? Or is it in, God told me I need to put off falsehood and speak honestly because that's who I've been made to be. That's what I'm going to live out. And then God is going to show me his plan for my life in that for whatever it is. You know, James says, we're going through James in, in staff devotion. James says at the beginning, count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trials. And we're like, yeah, ha, 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 good one, James. That's nice, right? And then we just got to verse 12 this past week, which was, um, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. For when they have endured it all, when they've come through it, they will receive a crown of life that God gives to all those who love him. There's this value, especially in James, there's this value of persevering, which everybody's like, bleh, persevering, yuck. But the idea is, when I face trials, it forces me to ask questions that I don't have to ask when things are good and things are going my way and there's no pushback. I don't have to ask these questions. It's just like, yeah, I trust God. But thank God I don't have to face any of that stuff, right? right? That's the difference when we talk about like, when James says, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's not, we're not, I'm not saying let's be hypercritical of being a human being. Like when you hit red light after red light, it's frustrating. When we were installing the flooring in our house last month um, and it didn't go well on a given day or there was a hard spot, I was frustrated and I was upset. It's not that I have to be unperturbable, but I've got to recognize that this is God shaping and molding me, that I've got to find my way back to solid ground. I got to find my, and I got to recognize what he's showing me as my reactions are like in this. If my reaction is, ooh, I want to lie so bad. <laughs> I want to deceive so bad because if I don't, uh, like, you know what I mean? Like that, you felt that push before, like, oh, I don't want to say, oh, I don't want to say. I remember um, when I was in, when I was in the fourth grade, um, I, this, is a to, this is a total, like, hopefully my parents, Hope my parents will never watch this. But, yeah, this, I'm going to speak in a language that only hopers can understand. Um, but when I was in the fourth grade, I, I got A's all the time in school forever. But this one thing that I did, um, it was a homework assignment or something, and it was, I didn't read all the instructions. It was some English thing where you're supposed to underline this and circle that and draw arrows and all kinds of stuff. And I only did like one part of it. So I had all this red all over it. And up the top I had a 25 with a circle. And then it had, you know, parent signature with a big red line. And I was in fourth grade and I never had an F in my life. I never took anything home for my parents to be signed ever. And they, I got that like right before lunch. And it just sat in my, you know, book bag all day and on my mind all day. And what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I, I remember I went where my, where the cars picked us up was up top of this hill. And there were some classrooms up there. My classroom was at the back end of that. And I walked up the hill and I walked to the end. And I'm waiting inside this classroom for, for uh, our carpool to come pick us up. And I just took it out of my book bag. I crumpled it up and I put it in the trash can and I went home. And I I don't know what the plan was there after that. Like, I don't know if I just thought my teacher was going to be forgetful or, or what, but I just did not want to be honest with my parents because I couldn't handle the uncertainty, the sense of shame or failure or whatever, and I just didn't want to face it. So I just hid it because I wanted this consequence instead of this consequence, right? And I had this consequence, I had blown up into this giant thing. I guess my parents were going to, you know, throw me out of the house or, you know, just chop off my legs or something. I don't know. I don't know what I thought they were going to do, but it was horrific. Whatever they were going to do was beyond anything I could imagine. And so I, the only option I had was to, to hide it, right? And then 
nothing ever came of it. The teacher never said anything, and I, I don't even know what happened. But it, I never said anything to my parents. I never heard anything from the teacher. So I learned my lesson. Yeah, I, I learned my lesson. Shame should be hid, right? But that's, that is the normal human tendency, is I want to direct an outcome here, and I want to avoid things that I don't want to have happen. So what am I going to do? I'm going to hide it. I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to deceive people so that they don't see the truth. And Paul says that's not who we were made. See, as a matter of fact, he says, you already have, in, in the chapters before this, you've already put off falsehoods and received the truth. You've put on the truth. So since you've done that to receive Jesus, continue to do that. Because being a believer and following Jesus is about the truth. Jesus is about the truth not about falsehood. So therefore, you need to embrace the truth if you want to follow Jesus. And sometimes that's hard, and sometimes that's scary. And what it, re- what it does is it shines a light, even in my failure, it shines a light on, I believed a lot more in my trash can than I believed in doing what was right. You know what I mean? Even fourth grade me, I believed a lot more in the power of hide. And that people all the time live under the pressure of secrets because they believe the secret keeps them safe but the secret keeps them enslaved. The secret keeps them prison. And they don't recognize it. They feel it, but they don't recognize it because when they stop to consider, what if I just came clean? Oh, no. Can't do that. I've already decided too much at stake. And so they just turn back around to the hiding of a secret. And that fear is the same fear that plays on us a thousand different ways when we feel like life is out of control, when life is going a direction that we don't want it to go. It's the fear that the enemy loves to hammer in our soul. And then Jesus says things like, don't take any thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble for itself. Like, what, what, how do you do that? Well, he just said, don't you know your father cares about you? Don't you know that he's got you? Don't you know that he's watching over you? And if he cares about the birds and he cares about the flowers, aren't you more valuable than they are? So he cares about you. So I have to go, I have to reorient. Like, if I do what I've been made to do, if I live in accordance with what I've been made to be, my father has me. And that's good. It's better than me having me. That's where faith begins to put on the new self and put off the old self. So I feel like for us as believers, this is pretty practical. You know, this is down home and personal because it requires us to walk and live by faith. All right, good stuff tonight. Thanks all the people out there in whatever land you are in, YouTube, Facebook, whatever, for joining us tonight. And uh, we will pick up there next week. We're getting close to the end of November's Bible study. We have another... Uh, two weeks maybe, and then, then Thanksgiving hits us and we'll take the break. So a couple more weeks in Ephesians 4 and then we will move on. All right, see you guys. Have a good night.